This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage right from your desk using your own computer and printer. Right now, get a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer by going to Stamps.com and using the promo code THEGIST. And buy Squarespace, the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store. Squarespace features an easy-to-use interface, beautiful templates, and 24-7 customer support. Right now, go to Squarespace.com and enter the offer code GIST at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. It's Monday, June 2nd, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So the other day, Friday, I was going to mention Dennis Hastert. And the context was that at the time, remember, this was Friday, Friday morning that I was talking about him. All we know is that he paid cash to someone for something. We didn't know who. We didn't know what. And because of that, it later comes out that, oh, my gosh, it could have been for covering up some sort of molestation. But at the time, I just was noting, we had just done a conversation with Alex Winter, who directed Deep Web about the Silk Road online forum, which was pretty much run with Tor and something called Bitcoin. And I was just making the case that if Denny Hastert had used Bitcoin, he never would have been caught. So to all you cryptocurrency fans, I know there's pluses, I know there are minuses, but you got to be able to answer the question. Would you have been glad if Dennis Hastert had not been caught? I know it's not a dispositive argument, but I figured I'd bring it up. But ho, ho, ho. Now we know what we're talking about, or at least it's been widely reported that some terrible thing was going on and it was Dennis Hastert paying hush money. That's what it seems, or to ABC's legal analyst Dan Abrams, more than seems. It's going to be very hard for him to defend against. I mean, he's probably guilty. I didn't know you were allowed to say that. I didn't know the legal expert was allowed to say that, even if you say probably, okay? Like Abrams probably shouldn't have said that. Anyway, the reason I bring up Dennis Hastert is this. I was reading in the New York Times, and for a second, I thought of, of all people, a beloved cherubic sidekick from Team Coco. So just imagine this guy reading the New York Times that morning, and he comes across this paragraph, the articles about Dennis Hastert's hometown, Yorkville, Illinois. Here's the Times. Joel Frieders, a member of the Yorkville City Council, dismissed suggestions that Yorkville will be blemished by the indictment. Mr. Frieders said younger Yorkville residents are barely aware of Mr. Hastert. Besides, he said, the city has another famous son. Andy Richter, the sidekick on Conan O'Brien, was a prom king at Yorkville High School. Andy Richter just spit out his beverage. No, do not associate me with this. I cannot carry the Yorkville banner. I need some distance between me and Hastert. Former Speaker of the House brings shame on self. Town pulls ripcord on that guy. Looks to star of Cabin Boy to rescue it. Mm Mm-hmm. This is not how it was meant to be. Sorry, Andy Richter, you deserved better but you're now Yorkville's unindicted favorite son. On the show today, I spiel about the pause in the Patriot Act. But first, Andrew Jackson, I think he is the most fought over figure in U.S. history. He was 
a racist patriot. He was a daring general who was courageous and brave, yet also rapacious and opportunistic as a land speculator. He looked at an unformed continent, breathed life into it, but he looked at scores of other human beings and ignored their humanity in favor of his own ambition. He animates and gives title to Steve Inskeep's new book, Jackson Land. But that's not the entire title, because the sub- title is President Andrew Jackson, Cherokee Chief John Ross, and a great American land grab. Steve Inskeep, host of NPR's Morning Edition, is here. Hello, Steve. Love that little essay you began with, Mike. Thank you very much. (laughs) So is it to my discredit, is it mostly my fault that the name John Ross to me, okay, because it was next to Jackson in the title, and alone I might not have recognized it. I said, yes, he was the chief of the Cherokees during the Trail of Tears. He was the butt end of that famous phrase that might not have been uttered about uh, Supreme Court Justice John Marshall. Mr. Marshall made his decision, now let him enforce it. But I didn't really know that much about John Ross. Well, most things I'd like to think are to your discredit, uh-huh, Mike, yeah. um, but not this one, not this one. I'd never heard of this guy three or four years ago, principal chief of the Cherokee Nation, uh, and a guy who's, there's been a couple of biographies. There's been some excellent scholars. I don't mean to say no work has been done. I learned from other people on this, but uh, to the general public, he's a figure you've read a line about in a book or read absolutely nothing about, and I'd never heard of this guy, but he rises to the occasion in this story, in my view. You and is a worthy opponent to Andrew Jackson for more than 20 years. And he was what he once served under Jackson. Yeah, yeah. They're they're both veterans of the War of 1812. Andrew Jackson was a general who won great victories in the War of 1812, which made him a national hero and made him president. John Ross was a Cherokee who joined something called the Cherokee Regiment because the Cherokees wanted to fight on the side of the United States because they were more or less trying to join up with the United States, which was spreading across the continent at that time. And they both fought, Ross and Jackson, at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, which was a great victory for Jackson uh, and which Ross found ways to make use of in later life as well. Yes. And... The fact that Jackson had uh, Cherokees under him, used the Cherokees as sort of the tip of the spear to kill Creek Indians, or, you know, they were his opponents in the Battle of Horseshoe Bend. But it gets at, I think, what some of his values were. Because he always, as you point out, he always wanted to make right with the fact that Cherokees were uh, in his employer, you know, served him as a general. Yet at the same time, he really was what we would call racist. And even at the time, it's not true that he was, you know, somewhere in the in the middle of attitudes. He was seen as a pretty vicious fellow at during his own time. Well, he was a slave owner, so let's not beat around the bush about that. And he owned multiple plantations, not just the Hermitage, where his mansion still stands. And he did terrible things to Native Americans. But I find him a more complicated figure and in some ways a modern figure that we can think about a lot. And Mike, you cover, you've covered the sports world, you've covered business, you've covered a lot of different things. I think you may recognize this kind of guy. I mean, to some extent, maybe we're all like this. Andrew Jackson, in my research, could be fair. He, for example, wanted his Cherokee soldiers to receive the same pay and benefits as white soldiers. And when he found out after the war that some of the Cherokee widows weren't getting their proper death benefits as they should have, as white widows were, he went to bat for them. So he could be fair. But he was this guy who also had an intense desire to win. And this notion, which is really common in the 19th century, of interest. If you had an interest in something, which really meant an economic or financial interest, 
just your morals could be shoved over to the side and everybody would sort of understand. And so Jackson could be fair except when he had an interest. And then the rules were the rules were gone. Well, you write again and again the four-letter word that describes Jackson is just, his sense of what is just, and that that dictated his actions. Somebody in the audience was thinking you were going for jerk, I think. <laughs> but, but yes, just, yes. He would capitalize it in his letters. He believed in justice, um, but it was going to be his own definition of justice, his own idea of what was just. You do what it takes to make sure your business runs efficiently, but constant trips to the post office can get your way. Or if you were like me this Saturday, one trip to the post office can eat up an hour and 45 minutes. And it's just a lot of time you could spend at the post office. Is there a solution? For you, it's Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you'll be able to spend less time in the post office and more time growing your business. Stamps.com makes mailing and shipping easy. Use your own computer and printer to buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or any package. I could have used it in sending out my passport forms, but no, I wanted to stand online. Stamps.com does all the thinking for you. It gives you a digital scale, and that means you know exactly the amount of postage you need, and it helps you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. Over half a million small businesses use stamps.com. They never go to the post office. You're competing against those guys. Right now, use the promo code the gist for a special offer. Get a no-risk trial. You get a $110 bonus offer. It includes the digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That's stamps.com. Enter the gist exit the post office, you get to leave the country. Maybe, if you're lucky. So he was a slave owner. Let's just, let's talk about that a little bit. Our, so many of our founding fathers were, and to some yeah. degree or another, Jefferson, Washington grappled with it. You know, we're finding out maybe Washington didn't grapple with it as much as we, as much as the myth would have us believe. But Jackson wasn't just a passive slave owner or someone who seemed deeply torn by the ambivalence of owning slaves. No, no. He, he bought into the system. Uh, and I think this is another place where interest comes into play. It was the rule at the time. It was the rule where he was. And unlike other people at that time, he didn't think very much about it because it wasn't in his interest to think very much about it. He bought his first slave when he was a very young man. He was moving west. He was trying to rise in the world. I imagine being a slave owner was uh, a mark of distinction. And it's very interesting that the first record of a slave uh, purchase was of a young woman. Uh, and I don't know precisely what he did with that young woman. Uh, we can imagine. Um, and he went further west, and he not only had a few slaves, he had dozens, and at some points, clearly hundreds of slaves, and he was a slave trader. Yeah, you make uh, a distinction about that. What is the what is the difference? Yeah, this is really interesting. And I, I first learned about this distinction years ago in reading a biography of Nathan Bedford Forrest, the Confederate uh, cavalryman and founder of the KKK, who was also a, a slave trader. In the South, as Southern culture developed, there was an elaborate system, and, and someone will correct me if you think I'm wrong, but there was an elaborate system, as I've come to understand it, of figuring out ways to live with the idea of owning other people and never quite looking it in the face. One thing that people would do was not call it slavery. They'd call it our domestic institution mm -hmm. or the peculiar institution. And another thing was by inventing gradations of behavior. If you were going to own slaves, 
you were going to buy and sell slaves. But it was decided that slave trading was an evil business. And in fact, there were efforts to ban the transatlantic slave trade at the very beginning of the country, long before anybody actually seriously thought about abolishing slavery itself. And so slave trading was seen as this disreputable business for disreputable people and not something that a high-toned, high-class person would do, although owning slaves was considered uh, perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. Jackson didn't care about all that hypocrisy. He was happy to just do whatever was in his interest. So there's a certain honesty to Jackson's position, although we can wish today, uh, and I'm sure many people wished then that he would have been honest and, and avoided hypocrisy by avoiding the whole thing. I think this gets to a fundamental, the crux of the issue with Jackson. Now, if you look at the historical rankings, I bet you've done this. So in 1948, I guess Schlesinger was the first one who surveyed historians, and Jackson came in sixth, the sixth greatest president of all time. Hmm. And he kind of hung around there for a little while. But then in and recent... then the BCS rankings came along, and things <laughs> yeah, were very exactly. different at that point. No, no, go on, go on, go on. Okay. So then, so then as you reach, if as you read through history, what historians thought of Jackson, it got a little worse and worse. And I think as lately, there's been maybe a backlash or a re-backlash with the John Meacham Pulitzer Prize winning book in 2009. But we begin to think of Jackson worse. And I don't know if that's because we uncover more facts about him or just because we tend to judge him against the mores of modern society. And as modern society changes, Jackson looks worse in retrospect. I think the answer is yes to your multiple choice question, mm -hmm. because there's a little bit of each of those things. Our mores, our idea of what is right has changed. Uh, and Jackson does, in fact, look worse as we look more critically at different parts of our history. There's also more information that is known. Uh, and it's just more, it's just broadcast in a different way. The stories of Cherokees, for example, have always been available, but I don't think that they were widely publicized. And many of the big biographies of Jackson, which are still available, just had very minor minor parts for the Cherokees to play uh, and for the Indians broadly to play. They were, they were distant enemies. They were unfortunate poor people. Uh, they were opponents of Jackson. They might even be treated sympathetically, but kind of patronizingly mm -hmm. and very briefly in a lot of the big histories. And now the information that's always sort of been there is dragged out. And there's, and there's new information, too. I mean, in, in my book, I, I investigate this man's real estate dealings in a way that I don't think is precise been done before. And I made a calculation based on federal land records that Jackson and his friends obtained vast amounts, 45,000 acres to be precise, of former Cherokee land that Jackson had grabbed as a public official for the United States. And he ended up arranging for it to get into his private hands and other people's private hands. And they put cotton plantations, slave plantations on that land and, and, and made a fortune. They also built cities. They were colonizing the area. They were building a new world. They were leaving a legacy. But it is a really, really, really dark and complicated legacy. Yeah. And as to your point about the Cherokees being shunted aside, the other historical trend is they don't fit into the great man of history narrative. And who doesn't, if not Andrew Jackson with his hair and his picture on the $20 bill. But the here you're talking especially. about... Yeah. Here you're talking about John Ross. And the phrase you use about him and the Cherokees, skilled political operators who played a bad hand long and well. And in this country, we do not honor the guy who makes things less bad. We don't lionize, to use the sports metaphor, right? The pitcher who comes in and and the team's down by four and doesn't let it get more out of hand. Yeah. Or, or, or Obama, when the economy was going poorly and President Obama would say, well, things could be could have been worse. He got no credit. The polls did not like that answer. It was only until the actual economy began to improve. So... 
that, that he got a little bit of credit. So in that way, John Ross doesn't fit in or hadn't fit into how we looked at history because ultimately the Cherokee weren't the winners. Yeah, that's so true. Uh, history is written by the winners, isn't it? And the, the losers were shoved off to the side. And I think that you made a, a very apt description of John Ross. He made things a little less bad than they than they would have been. Uh, the Cherokees held out longer than, than many other people did. They didn't get into a bloody war in doing that. The Trail of Tears was deadly and devastating, but Ross was able to cut a deal to make that slightly less bad at the end. Uh, he's a political figure. He's an imperfect person. He had his own vanities and flaws and was also, by the way, a slave owner. Uh, and so he's an imperfect person fighting against Andrew Jackson, who's an imperfect person. And the more that I learned about this story and I've thought about it, I've realized that that's actually what the story is about. What should be at the center of our history is not great men or, for that matter, great women. We should have heroes, and some people deserve to be heroes, but we're all imperfect. And what is actually at the center of our story is democracy itself and the great contest of imperfect people in a democracy to fight against each other, get to a result, screw up, fight against each other some more, and hopefully get a little better result the next time. Hmm. Where'd your interest in Andrew Jackson come from? Um, well, it, it came from, from modern politics, actually. I've always been interested in the 1830s. I've always read history. I, I studied history in school. And, um, and so I was interested in the 1830s. And in recent years, I began to think that our politics was just a total mess. I know that will be a surprise to you, Mike. <laughs> well, the only reason you think that is because you've been paying attention. <laughs> well, okay, that's true. It's true. Many people don't. But in any case, yes, I'm paying attention and, and it's a mess. Yeah. And, and I began thinking, like, where did this come from? And it drove me back into history. And I got to this era, the 1830s, that I'd already been interested in, that was the beginning of our democracy. And it was really great to read the letters and newspapers of the time and see people behaving in ways that I recognized. Well, I was also wondering, given all the wars you've covered, that these themes of a, a new young democracy having to deal with or integrate or maybe not integrate a nettlesome minority, I mean, that's what's going on in the events in Jackson land. That's what's going on in Iraq and Afghanistan, where you've spent a lot of time. Oh, absolutely. You have different groups of people. You have people in the majority and people in the minority. You have conflicts over land. You have conflicts over power. And you have especially a struggle to establish institutions that are universally respected where people can work out their differences or maybe not work them out precisely, fight them out and see who wins and fight again and see who wins that time. And when you study the early United States, you have a period where our institutions had not fully been created and weren't necessarily as solid as they would be later. And you had a Supreme Court with a great Chief Justice, John Marshall, but you didn't have a guarantee that the, that the president would actually follow a Supreme Court order, for example. And so you, you have, you do have this thing that makes you think of, of modern times because it's about land, because it's about different people clashing and trying to figure out their rights and, and how to mediate their rights. And, and it's about what kind of government makes sense for human beings. All right. Last question. Who should be on the $20 bill? Well, uh, I've given an answer to that in the New York Times. 
in an article a couple of weeks ago, I proposed that it should be John Ross in the $20 bill. Uh, but then on the other side, there should be Andrew Jackson, because those two guys together tell a story, and they symbolize a democratic era, and they symbolize democracy itself. And I want to do that with the other bills as well. You could have Ulysses S. Grant on one bill, the $50 bill, and Harriet Beecher Stowe on the other side. Grant's armies ended the Civil War. Stowe's book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, helped to start it. You could have Lincoln on one bill, and on the other side, Frederick Douglass, the escaped slave who pushed him uh, to end slavery faster. You could tell democratic stories about democracy itself on our money. And we get back to what, we're, what we were saying before. Then it's not the great man theory of money. It's the democratic theory of money. Next up, Steve Inskeep resculpts Mount Rushmore. We'll do that. <laughs> Steve Inskeep, the author of Jackson Land, President Andrew Jackson, Cherokee Chief John Ross, and a great American land grab. Thanks a lot, Steve. Mike, thanks to you. It's an honor. So we were just watching the video for Stop Using Sex as a Weapon. And at the time, it was cutting edge. There was Pat Benatar, and she was presented in some sort of weird TV UHF, can't quite get the signaling correctly. But in the background, there was all this Max Headroom stuff going on. There were six different visuals. I remember it just being cutting edge at the time. And now it looks like crap. Joel saw it and says, that looks like what would happen if one of my mom's co-workers made a video. Now, to be fair, his mom is Sheena Easton. We don't usually disclose that on the show. But the point is, something that maybe looked good even a few years ago, or in Pat Benadar's case, the 80s. Remember Fast Times, where a number of girls showed up looking like Pat Benatar. Anyway, the thing that once looked good probably doesn't look good. It not only doesn't look good, it might not work good. It is not good. Websites get out of date faster than even Pat Benatar videos. So you're going to want to build a website correctly. You're going to want to make it look snazzy and you're going to want it to be easy. Easy to use, easier for the end user to use. So that's why we're talking about Squarespace. Squarespace has state-of-the-art technology powering your site to ensure security and stability. It's trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world. Not that Pat Benatar isn't a respected brand. I am in no way implying she endorses Squarespace. I'm just comparing Pat Benatar to Squarespace. You get that right? You would understand this better if you went to my newly designed website, Analogies Involving patbenatar.ninja. Squarespace starts at $8 a month and you get a free domain name. I took the Benatar one. If you sign up for a year. So to start your free trial today with no credit card required, go to squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code GIST to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. And now the spiel, unnecessary search at your leisure. They say patriotism is the last refuge of the scoundrel, but Rand Paul is intent on letting the Patriot Act find no refuge at all. The, here's what the Patriot Act, sorry, the USA Patriot Act stands for. Uniting and strengthening America by providing appropriate tools required to intercept and obstruct terrorism act. The and, by, to, and and are not capitalized. Neither is the act. But yes, that stands for USA Patriot Act. Now, without the Patriot Act, into the maw might come another similar act that allows a lot of the government to do what the government has been doing. That one's called the USA Freedom Act. 
stands for Uniting Strengthening America, by fulfilling rights and ending eavesdropping dragnet collection and online monitoring act. Again, the little words and the word act are not in the title, but neither is collection. That's sort of cheating. I think both those bills got their name under the Go Hey Huggo Act. You know the Go Hey Huggo Act. It's the George Orwell. Has anyone ever heard of George Orwell Act? So with the suspension of the Patriot Act, we now stand naked and defenseless without the protection of bulk data collection and electronic eavesdropping there to help us. But still, there are still ways for the government to give everyone the once or twice over, like um, they could still look into ongoing investigations if the eavesdropping or bulk data collection happened before the Patriot Act sunsetted. That could go on. And there's also the lone wolf provision, right? So this is, well, what if you're not associated with a foreign government? What if you're just a lone wolf? Yes, they can investigate you. Now, lone wolf, that's one of those titles that's very self-justifying. Who is going to be against the lone wolf provision? Are there those in the pro-lone wolf lobby? And when you think about it, though, they make the lone wolf sound like the scariest of the wolves, but isn't a pack of wolves scarier than a lone wolf? Oh no, it's the lone wolf we have to watch out for. And here's a little media side. Do you think CNN's ratings get a little tiny bump whenever the lone wolf provision is mentioned? You know, Mr. Blitzer, he's top of mind when you hear that one. Don't you think MSNBC should demand a lone Steve Kornacki exception to be written into law or a lone Chris Hayes provision? Bloodthirsty and ragged. There's no accounting. This erudite bespeckled former writer for the nation. What will he do? He's a lone Chris Hayes. And further, further media side, is it just me? Or is it a coincidence that CNN's longest-serving anchorman is Wolf, but CNN's main rival, Fox, is led by an anchor named Shepard? So who's really on your side? The Wolf or the Shepard? Fox is outthinking all of us. And when Wolf Blitzer doesn't have a guest, when it's just him talking to the camera, that's a lone wolf, right? We need a provision for that. So these are the questions I can ask now and only now because the government will not be eavesdropping on my innermost thoughts. That is my understanding of the Patriot Act. So the question is, what are you, random citizen we met on the street, what are you going to do now that the Patriot Act is temporarily suspended? We hit the pavement to find out. I intend to use a portion of a Major League Baseball broadcast without the express written consent of the Milwaukee Brewers or Major League Baseball. I'm a middle-aged man with no children, but I'm going to sign up for every season of My Little Pony on Netflix. What are you going to do now that the Patriot Act has been temporarily suspended? As a Muslim American, I feel like I can go to the Wikipedia page for the 1970s TV show ISIS for the very first time. I'm going to dox Mitch McConnell. What are you going to do now that the USA Patriot Act is no longer in effect? Um, I'm going to register my old website dedicated to suppressing the career of Godfather and Rocky star Talia Shire. Support the Taliban.com. And there we just heard from, rather not say, no name, anonymous, Randall, Howard, Paul, and who's asking. Those characters may or may not be fictitious. We don't have to say, and you can't figure it out from collecting our bulk data.
That's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is off today, which means that Joel Meyer was not only managing producer, but actual producer. He is using the Patriot Act interregnum to feverishly Google an international gathering of buckaroos, the global jihad. Executive producer Andy Bowers uses this pause in the Patriot Act to finally convert all his Cat Stevens CDs to digital. The Gist asks you to follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Slate Gist, and also Twitter, our Slate Gist Twitter feed. It's just too low. Come on, guys. If one twentieth of our listeners subscribed on Twitter, we'd have a much higher Twitter following. The Gist is using the Patriot Act pause to engage in commerce with an unfriendly power, but it's not just us. It's also They Might Be Giants. You know, the musical act behind Dial a Song, which can be dialed at 844-387-6962. Starting Tuesday, you can hear the song that debuts every Monday on The Gist. They Might Be Giants, as I said, engaging in commerce with an unfriendly foreign power here now, sold my mind to the Kremlin. And no seat in the convention hall I sold my mind to the Kremlin On the 4th of July I was wearing a Yoda mask You were talking like Lou Ferrigno A hat made of paper, a vest made of ugly An intercom with just one button This bag is almost empty That was your sole communication From unimproved roads on the 4th of July Fishing holes don't exist And country music with all those lists Of things from yesterday you can no longer gain Let's talk about Patty Hearst, Skeletor, and Charles Manson Reagan closed the hospitals for the mentally With the mentally ill And I'm singing into a tape recorder Trapped in this thing That I can't get away from This bag is almost empty That was your sole communication From unimproved roads On the 4th of July No place in the processional And no seat in the convention hall I sold my mind Sessional and no seat in the convention hall. I saw my mind.